There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. And here we are, guys. Welcome back. This is part two for you. It's day two for me. So it's London, 1977. Nancy made it to the UK. She ran into some trouble on her way there, but eventually she got where she was going. She found Jerry Nolan from the Dolls, the reason she wanted to go there in the first place. Jerry introduced her around, he got her into some parties, he got her connected into the music scene in the UK. She made a few friends and she found a place to live in London. And she immediately fell for Sid Vicious. Then it all went to shit. Sid. Sid fucking Vicious. John Simon Ritchie, or eventually John Simon Beverly, when he took his stepfather's last name. Sid's childhood was a far cry from the suburbs, an in-ground pool, two parents, two siblings, people who wanted to help you no matter the cost, like Nancy had. Sid's mom got pregnant and moved to Ibiza, with Sid expecting his father to join them, which he never did. His stepfather died pretty soon after marrying his mother, and his mom had a habit she had to feed. So it was easy for her to feed Sid's habit as well. It was a vicious cycle of dependency between Sid and his mom and Beverly. Sid fell into the Sex Pistols. He really had next to zero music ability. He couldn't sing. He couldn't play. He sat in and out of a few bands. He drummed for Susie and the Banshees once. And he hung out around Malcolm McLaren's sex shop in London. And, okay, it wasn't a sex store. It was a clothing store called Sex. Sid was also friends with John Lydon. They went to school together. The Sex Pistols, to me, are like the original boy band in the sense that they were created. They weren't the New York Dolls with guys like David Johansson and Johnny Thunders who'd been playing for years in one band or another around New York. They weren't guys who created the sound or the scene. They weren't visionaries. The Sex Pistols were guys who had angry and who had time on their hands. A few of them could play guitar, a few of them couldn't. And they had the help of someone like McLaren, who knew how to capitalize on a moment and build a brand and an identity and ride the wave. Sid wasn't an original Sex Pistols member. He stepped in to replace Glenn Matlock, who pissed everyone off. Almost none of Sid's vocals or bass are on Nevermind the Bollocks. But Sid, who, by the way, was named after his fucking hamster, Sid had a presence. And sometimes that's all it takes. He looked like he was about to die. He was so fucking thin. And he had spiked hair that was mohawked sometimes. He wore all the leather and the studs he could get his hands on from sex. Shit, the entire band was outfitted from sex, as were most of the kids in London at the time. Sid was different, and he was sexy, and he stole the spotlight from his buddy John Lydon, who actually could sing, or at least I like his singing. You guys know who John Lydon is, right? That's Johnny Rotten. Within weeks, the phone calls started again. Nancy calling home. I have nowhere to live. No food. No money. You have to send me money. Don't you love me? Why don't you love me? Why do you hate me? Why won't you fucking help me? I'm your fucking daughter. Why won't you fucking help me? Once, Nancy told Deborah never to trust a junkie, even if that junkie was her daughter. Sometimes she would have Sid call. He would call Deb mum, and the two of them would beg for money. 
Sid left London in 1978 for an American tour with the Sex Pistols, and Nancy was shattered that she couldn't go with him. McLaren couldn't stand her. He didn't want her around. And quite honestly, there were very few people in London that wanted Nancy around other than Sid. And it's not like the rest of the people in the scene weren't using drugs. I mean, they were, but some of them knew well enough to sober up for gigs, and Sid just fucking couldn't. The American tour was a shit show because of that, plus Sid's uncanny ability to fuck with audience members. The Sex Pistols actually broke up in the U.S. during that American tour. Sid returned to London, but his time there with Nancy was short-lived because she announced that she and Sid were coming to America. Sid was going to make it on his own. He would make it in New York because Nancy would be his manager. She left out the part about the dead body found in their London flat from a supposed drug overdose. So imagine this. It's 1978. You live in the suburbs. You have a nicely manicured lawn, two cars in the driveway, 2.5 bathrooms, 2.5 kids. And Sid Vicious is sitting on your back porch by the pool eating steak you grilled on the barbecue, telling you it's the best fucking meal he's ever had. Sid Vicious is smoking in your living room. He's sleeping from methadone because he's trying to kick heroin and ashes from his lit cigarette fall on your couch. Your younger children invite their friends over to see the celebrity sleeping on your sofa like he's some animal in a zoo. And the entire time you're watching the clock so you can take Sid Vicious and your daughter to the hotel down the street because there's no way in hell you're letting these two sleep in your house. Almost that chiaroscuro look, all black and white. I mean, they stood out as if lights were shining around them, and they were so outrageous looking and so pale and so ill looking to me. And yet they didn't know that on the train platform in a suburban commuter station that the whole, every single person was looking at them. Yeah, it sounds like something out of a movie, but it wasn't. It was Nancy's homecoming to Huntington Valley with Sid Vicious. Sid and Nancy spent a weekend at her childhood home, and then they caught the train to New York. They set down roots in the Chelsea Hotel. And no one who stays at the Chelsea Hotel really sets down roots, even people who lived there for years. The Chelsea was the home of tortured artists, true artists like Bob Dylan. Dylan Thomas died there. People like Allen Ginsberg, Tennessee Williams, and Sartre stayed there. They wrote some of their best work at the Chelsea. Kubrick and Dennis Hopper were residents at the Chelsea, and of course, Andy Warhol. At one time or another, Hendrix and Joplin, Alice Cooper, the Ramones, they all stayed there. There had to be something at the Chelsea that sparked magic, and maybe that magic would work for Sid and Nancy. True to her word, Nancy actually busted her ass to get Sid gigs. I mean, or she at least busted her ass when she wasn't smacked up on heroin. This was the late summer and early fall in 1978, and as crazy and lacking in true talent as Sid may have been, he was seen as the face of punk. He just was because he was larger than life and he smashed shit on television and people thought he vomited on stage and he was a freak show and people just couldn't look away. People wanted to play with him. Like, they wanted to see him succeed. Guys like Mick Jones from The Clash, for fuck's sake. His old buddies from the New York Dolls, like Jerry Nolan and Johnny Thunders. Sid had gigs at Max's Kansas City and CBGB again. Nancy even lined up something for him in Philly in late October. And somehow, she managed to get the clubs to pay her in advance so they had money. They had each other. They had an insane 
toxic romance, but, you know, there is no doubt in my mind that they loved each other fiercely, that they would die for one another. They would kill for one another, maybe even kill each other if that's what one of them needed. Sid Vicious was abusive. Nancy was constantly sporting bruises and signs of abuse. So how can you love another person if you hurt them? I don't know. I think they were both in so much pain and neither one of them knew how to deal with it. It was like, I hurt so much. I want you to feel my pain to show me you love me. Nancy admitted to her mother Sid beat her. She made excuses for it. No one understands him. The record company is holding out on him, referring to the money that he was owed for his cover of My Way. Sid's struggling and he doesn't mean it. When Sid and Nancy were visiting her family before they moved to New York, she told her mom she didn't think she would live to see 21. She said she didn't want to be old or ugly, and she already felt like she was 80. It's not surprising, and even for all the shitty things people around Sid and the 70s music scene in New York have to say about Nancy, they all remarked that they couldn't believe she was so young. By 11, she'd already tried suicide, she smoked pot, she was in and out of clinics and specialists, she was in lockdown. Nancy was an old, tortured soul. There are different stories about what happened in the weeks leading up to Nancy's murder. Things on the New York underground, and this could be because heroin was getting harder to find on a daily basis, did seem to get a lot more scuzzy. You know, the Dead Boys drummer was famously stabbed outside a taxi rank at four in the morning. And a lot of a lot of the people on the underground were arming themselves. You know, it's, it's quite well documented that people like Didi Ramon and Steve Bators weren't just buying knives, they were telling other people to buy knives. Because there was obviously something going very wrong on the, on the scuzzy side of Manhattan, if you like. Sid had a few gigs at Max's Kansas City, and he could barely stand. If the stories are true, it's lucky for them Nancy convinced the bar to pay them in advance because Sid was so whacked out on heroin, there was basically no show and the audience was pissed. And according to a bunch of friends, not just Sid's musician friends, but Nancy's dear friend, a guy named Neon Leon, and people who lived at the Chelsea, Sid and Nancy were rolling in money in early October. It was so bad because both of them spent most of their time smacked. Nancy would be dropping $100 bills in the hallway of the Chelsea. Neon Leon said there were days where he would follow her down the hall to pick up the money she dropped and give it back to her. I remember following Nancy through the, the lobby, picking up her money because she was always dropping $100 bills behind her. I felt like Nancy had lost some of her street smarts. And picking those up, Nancy, put these away. This is, you know, remember New York City? <laughs> The old Nancy, right, would have never been in a lobby of a hotel with thousands of pounds in New York. Besides money from Sid's gigs, his label finally made good on his My Way cover, and he just received 25 grand. Now, Deborah Spungen says there is no way, absolutely no way those kids had money, not that kind of money. She said they were constantly broke. They were constantly calling her and Frank asking for money. But that's not what everyone else says. And anyone who was present in their Chelsea apartment towards the end of September and the beginning of October talked about the money, the stash of money they kept in a drawer. The night of October 11th wasn't much different than most nights in Sid and Nancy's apartment. They were high. Nancy was on heroin, but Sid was on something different. He wanted something to knock himself out, something that would bring him down. And they called a couple of friends to come over with downers. Somebody showed up with two and all and... His friends claim Sid was practically comatose from taking a handful. Some people said he took 30, which probably would have killed him. Two and all is a mix of secobarbital and barbiturates, and it knocks you the fuck out. 
So people came and went all night long. They were mostly Nancy's friends who were either there delivering drugs or somebody there looking for drugs. But there's one guy in particular that people talk about, somebody that stood out. It was a guy named Michael. That's it. There's no last name, just Michael. We were having a meal before the gig, and this kid was sitting with Nancy, blonde-haired kid. And I said to Sid, I said, you know, who is that? Like, it's just like, oh, that's Michael. Nancy really likes him. Apparently, he was a good-looking, younger guy with long, shaggy blonde hair, and nobody really knew him. He'd been hanging around off and on over the last few weeks. He seemed to show up about the same time the money did. And you really didn't need to know each other. You just needed to know where to go to get the drugs. Neon Leon called their place later that night. It was sometime after 1 a.m. It was after Sid was totally unconscious from the two and all. And he heard a male voice in the background that was not Sid's. If you believe Leon and everyone who was in their apartment overnight between October 11th and 12th, someone else was there. Someone nobody really knew. And in the morning, Nancy was dead. She bled out on the floor of a cramped bathroom in a filthy apartment in the Chelsea Hotel. She was wearing nothing but her sexy black bra and panties that she liked to wear for Sid. She had a stab wound in her abdomen from a seven-inch hunting knife, a knife which had been purchased only weeks before. Some say Sid bought the knife, others said it was Nancy, and eventually the police were able to confirm it was indeed Nancy who bought the knife. On the morning of the 12th, Sid woke up. He found Nancy. He didn't know what happened. He tried to wake her up. He thought she was passed out. He tried to clean her up. He left the apartment, and he just wandered Chelsea. Sid was quickly picked up by the NYPD because after he woke up and left the apartment, somebody called police and said there was a body in Suite 100 of the Chelsea Hotel. Today, police received an ambulance call at the Chelsea Hotel on West 23rd Street. In room 100, Sid Vicious was sitting on the bed near his picture. In the bathroom was the 20-year-old American girl he'd lived with for two years. Nancy Laura Spungen had been stabbed to death. Police say a collapsible hunting knife lay nearby. Neon Leon, a rock artist, was with Sid Vicious and Nancy early this morning. I find it kind of hard to believe knowing him outside of the context of, you know, the image of what the Sex Pistols were supposed to be, anarchy and, you know, uh, destroying everything. But he really loved this person. He loved her more than he loved his music. Vicious's real name is John Simon Ritchie, and he's been booked for murder. When they transferred him to a detention center, it took four men to hold him. Sid Vicious fought his way through a barricade of cameras. But this time, it wasn't for show. Just two weeks before her murder, Nancy called Deborah and asked about an inpatient clinic that was outside of Philly. She wanted her mom to see if the clinic would take her and Sid. She wanted to try to get off heroin again, and she knew that they would never be able to do it alone or through a methadone program. Nancy was adamant that she wouldn't go to this clinic if it was a lockdown. She'd gone through a lockdown in a facility when she was a little girl, and she was terrified of going through something like that again. Just two weeks before she died, she was thinking about getting clean. She told her mother she loved her, loved her more than anyone. She asked her mother to tell her father that she loved him too, even though she hadn't spoken to him in more than a year. She told Deborah, you know why I love you so much. And that was the last time Deborah spoke to Nancy. In her book, Deborah said she felt like Nancy was calling to say goodbye. On the morning of October 12th, Deborah Spungen got the call she'd been expecting since Nancy was 16. Nancy was dead. Local police were contacted by the NYPD, and the locals called Deborah to give her the news. She immediately expected them to tell her Nancy OD'd. That's what she was expecting. That's what she was prepared for. Although, how any parent prepares for a call like that, I cannot fucking imagine. But she did. Years of trying to save her daughter from 
addiction, and violence. She expected something like this to catch up with her eventually, but what she didn't expect was to hear that Nancy had been murdered, and it was at the hands of her boyfriend, Sid Vicious. And that's when the circus really came to town. It's bad enough losing a loved one. And I I can't even imagine how that tragedy is compounded when you lose a loved one to murder. The questions and terror and an entirely different pattern of grieving are unbelievable. But when your child is murdered by a celebrity and then she was a bit of a celebrity herself, you can't even grieve because you can't see from the blinding flash of cameras in your face when you open your door and the phone ringing off the hook and people stopping to ask, how do you feel? Do you have anything to say? Your daughter was a witch. She got Sid addicted to heroin. Her death was her own fault. How do you feel? How do you feel, Mrs. Spungen? Mrs. Spungen felt like killing herself. Sid was arrested and out on bail the day after Nancy's funeral, Malcolm McLaren flew to the States. He paid for a high-priced attorney and the record label put up the $50,000 cash bail to get him out of jail. Nancy was buried in her prom dress from Devereaux. It was a lime green dress that she loved. It had a big slit and a bare midriff and Deborah knew that that's the only thing Nancy would want to wear. The funeral home dyed her hair back to its natural chestnut brown from the platinum blonde she had been for years. She was buried surrounded by family, people who loved her, despite how hard she made it for anyone to love her. Sid called the day after Nancy's funeral. How Deborah Spungen had the strength to speak with him is beyond me. She was so torn between the idea of speaking with her daughter's murderer and speaking with Sid, the only person who seemed to truly understand Nancy. She managed to take her call, and he told her he was broken. He couldn't live without Nancy. His life couldn't go on. He begged her to call him again or let him call, let him write. Deborah listened, and then she simply said, I have to go. Between the chaos of the media burying her daughter four months shy of her 21st birthday and watching her other children turn from her because their grief was so big and fueled by resentment for the sister who tortured them, but loving her nonetheless, Deborah found herself one day standing in front of a mirror with a noose around her neck that she'd fabricated from a piece of wire. She planned to hang herself from a beam in the garage and she looked at her reflection and called a therapist. Deborah got help. Frank got help. The kids got help. But it was a long and difficult road. Sid wrote two letters to Deborah. She didn't share them with the police. She shared them years after Nancy's death. Sid loved Nancy madly. He lived to make her happy. He tried to kill himself shortly after she was murdered, but friends got him in the hospital in time to save his life. He looked at that as a failure, so he tried to jump out the window while he was in the hospital, and again, his attempts were thwarted. He wanted to be with Nancy. He promised her he would be with her in death, just as he was in life. He told Deborah he never knew what pain was until he lost his Nancy. Nancy once asked me if I would pour petrol over myself and set it on fire, and she told me to. I said I would, and I meant to. If you would happily die for someone, then how can you live without them? I can't go on without her. She always said she'd die before she was 21, and I never doubted it. Deborah Spungen believed Sid Vicious loved her daughter. She believed Sid would have done anything for Nancy, even kill her if that's what Nancy asked. Knowing it was Nancy who bought the knife, Deborah believes she may have orchestrated her own death convinced Sid to kill her, but truly nobody knows what happened. No one will ever know. 
But I believed that, too. I believed that if Sid did kill Nancy, he did it because she wanted him to. I believed it until I saw the documentary Who Killed Nancy. Who Killed Nancy was released in 2009 by a guy named Alan Parker. He's a British author. He's a documentary filmmaker. And he released this movie 30 years after Sid Vicious died from a heroin overdose in his girlfriend's apartment. Alan knew Sid. He knew Nancy. He knew Sid's mom and Beverly. And he knew the scene and the people on the scene. I didn't want to watch the movie. I didn't. I didn't want to listen to someone tell me something other than what I believed about what happened to Nancy. But I watched it because I felt like ignoring that film would be a cheat. First of all, it's a good film. It is a really good documentary. I rented it on iTunes, but I think the entire movie is on YouTube, so you can save yourself a couple of bucks if you want to watch it. It's actually a really great film about punk in the 70s. It's amazing because guys like Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols and Lee Childers, who captured the era in pictures, Ned Van Zant, who's an actor who was actually in the apartment the night Nancy was murdered when all of these people were partying there, Steve Dior from The Idols. There's so many punk legends in this movie who were either there the night Nancy died or when Sid OD'd. And they all say the same thing. No matter how Nancy may have begged for it, if she did beg for it, there's no way Sid killed her because he was near death from the two and all. He wouldn't have been able to get out of bed. He wouldn't have been able to pick up a knife, let alone stab somebody with it. There were thousands of dollars in a dresser drawer, and the knife that was used to kill Nancy had been wiped clean and placed on a suitcase in the other room. The money was gone. Yeah, some people might suspect the cops have taken it, but uh, um, I, I would think it would have, I don't think it was a motive in the killing, but uh, it was um, an opportunity. Whether the police took it or the person who murdered Nancy took it, Sid didn't have it. And he sure as shit wouldn't have cleaned a bloody knife when the bathroom was covered in blood and there were bloody prints all over the apartment. There were six people the police should have talked to, and those names have never been released. But the fact that the police identified the prints of six people from the Chelsea Hotel apartment means that these six people were in the system. These six people had a record, and the police didn't do shit. It was another dead junkie, so who cares? Sid probably did it. He's out on bail. He'll probably be dead of an overdose soon enough anyway, so the whole thing will work itself out. And that's exactly what happened. In December of 1978, Sid wound up back in jail for glassing someone, and it was Patti Smith's brother, of all people. If you don't know who Patti Smith is, then even more than the New York Dolls, you need to get on the fucking internet and look her up because her shit is incredible. So glassing is when you take a broken bottle and you try to kill someone or attack someone with it. Sid was out at a club, he was watching Patti Smith, and he was digging on this hot girl who turned out to be Todd Smith's girlfriend. He groped her, and Todd flipped his shit, so Sid tried to kill him with a broken bottle. Sid got tossed into Rikers on December 9th, and unlike when he was arrested for Nancy's murder, he didn't get out right away this time. He spent almost two months in jail because he was kept inside for mandatory rehab. He was released on February 1st after detoxing at Rikers, and the day he got out of jail, he got high. So it was the night of February 1st, and... Sid's death is covered in incredible detail in the film Who Killed Nancy. Everyone who saw him when he got out, what they did, what they said. People were hanging out at a Bank Street apartment and Sid wanted to get high. So his mom went out and scored some heroin, but what she got was shit. It was weak. It didn't do much. And Sid wanted more. He didn't just want more. He wanted something better. He went to see some of his old friends. He asked if they were carrying and they didn't want to give him any drugs. They knew he just got out of jail and was on methadone. So they lied and said, no, man, we don't have anything. 
And the sad thing is, some of them have said in hindsight they wished they had let Sid get high with them because they could have kept an eye on him. But if it wasn't that day when Sid OD'd with them, it would have been another day with other people. Because just like Nancy, Sid was not long for this world. Sid ran into a friend, a guy named Peter Kodak, who was a photographer, and he asked Peter if he could score some heroin. And Peter said, sure, he bought from someone he didn't really know. It was a woman from London who everybody said had the best dope. The shit was supposedly 98% pure. Sid shot up and he started to OD. Before he got clean, he probably could have handled heroin like that, but his body wasn't ready for it. So the people who were with him that night, they got him up around midnight. They thought he would be okay. They had him up walking around for a while, but he did another dose of that shit. Coming close to ODing is what happened when you were a junkie. He eventually fell asleep after the second hit, and sometime after 3 a.m., he never woke up. He was found the morning of February 2nd four months after Nancy died. He was 22. After Sid died, his mother, Ann Beverly, found a suicide note in his jacket. It said he and Nancy had a death pact, and he wanted to be buried next to his baby in his leather jacket and his motorcycle boots. Ann Beverly called Deborah Spungen after Sid's death and asked if he could be buried with Nancy. Deborah didn't exactly say no. She was so caught off guard, she said, you can't. It's a family plot. Plus, Sid isn't Jewish, so he can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. How do you respond to a request like that? The mother of the man who you've been told murdered your daughter wants him buried right alongside her. There's another story that Sid's mother and his aunt took Sid's ashes to the cemetery in suburban Philly and spread them all over Nancy's grave. I don't know if that's true or not. And there's no one to ask because... Sid's mother died of an overdose a few years later. Sid's death meant no trial, no trips to New York for hearings, no being shoved back into the spotlight and the public eye over something that should be a very private matter. And it meant no more press hiding in the bushes, destroying any sense of privacy the Spongeons had. But that wasn't enough. Deborah needed to get out of Huntington Valley. So the Spongeons sold their home. They moved back to Philly. They were hoping that a fresh start in a neighborhood where they were less well-known would help. Deborah left her job. She had no sense of purpose there anymore, and David and Susie were experiencing the same things in school. One day, she was laying in bed, and she caught an episode of The Phil Donahue Show. And on it was a couple named Bob and Charlotte Hullinger who founded a group called Parents of Murdered Children. Their daughter had been murdered by her boyfriend when they were traveling through Europe, and their biggest struggle when their daughter was killed was finding someone they could talk to who understood what they were going through. And when they couldn't find anyone, they started their own organization. Deborah Spungen called the Hollingers that night. She was hoping there would be a chapter of Parents of Murdered Children in Philly. There wasn't. They asked her if she would start one, and she wasn't ready for that. The Spongeons were trying to regain a sense of security and, and privacy and anonymity and to come out into the public like that, running a chapter for parents of murdered children, it would push them back into the public eye. And they did it anyway. The first meeting was in their living room at their Society Hill home. There were seven families, all with stories about their children's murders. Since then, the organization grew. Deborah went back to school. She earned a master's degree in social service and law from Bryn Mawr College in 1989. And she's now the founding director of an organization called Anti-Violence Partnership of Philadelphia. 
It began as a support group for families of murder victims, and today the AVP helps children learn to cope with issues without violence and supports victims and families in an effort to rebuild their lives after violent experiences. You can learn more about the Anti-Violence Partnership affiliate on their website at avpphila.org. Sometimes covering stories from Philly can be unnerving to me because people and families connected with these stories are still in the area. That's very much the case for Nancy's story. It's tough emotionally sometimes because I didn't personally experience any of these crimes. But me and so many other local listeners, we remember these stories. We remember the names. We remember the families and the impacts it had on our community. I told you in the beginning, this is Nancy's story, and it is. It's the story of a little girl who struggled to enter this world and spent the rest of her life struggling. It's the story of her family and their constant efforts to provide love and care and support, even though it never seemed to be enough. It's the story of how this beautiful, smart, troubled girl wound up being the partner of one of the most famous musical icons of the last 50 years. And while I didn't want to make this about Sid, you can't tell Nancy's story without including Sid. I think rage and rapture is a fitting description for Nancy because, to me, it feels like she found a sense of rapture in her rage, in a beautiful destruction. And somehow, as tragic as her life was, at the end, she had love. She had love from her family and love from a partner who was just as troubled as she was. I have a few thank yous to offer up before I say goodbye. Thank you to Brianna from the Murder Dictionary podcast and to Toffer from the Master Debaters podcast for providing the voiceovers you heard in this episode. They are brilliant and they're two of my favorite podcasts, so I hope you will show them some love and check them out. You can also find them on Twitter. You can find Master Debaters at underscore Master Debaters and Murder Dictionary Podcast at M underscore D underscore podcast for Murder Dictionary. As always, thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music in this episode. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and download her music on iTunes. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. <laughs>